0: Top 5 Strangest Murder Motives Some people kill for money, a few kill for love, but certain killers commit murder for the strangest reasons. The five people on this list are examples of just that. These are the top 5 strangest murder motives. Number 5, Richard Angelo He wanted to play hero. Richard Angelo, a native Long Island New Yorker, always wanted to help people. Born to parents who worked in the educational sector, he graduated from high school in 1980 and took a two-year nursing program at Farmingdale State College. He was known for being an honor student but was described as someone who kept to himself. Angelo first worked as a registered nurse at the Nassau County Medical Center in East Meadow and eventually found himself working at the Good Samaritan Hospital. Once there, he was known as competent and well-trained. His calm and responsible demeanor earned him the trust of doctors and co workers alike. Despite the praise he received though, it wasn't enough. Angelo soon devised a plan on how he could get more of the praise he wanted in life. Patients at the hospital then began mysteriously dying. Working from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., Angelo would go around injecting patients with paralyzing drugs like anestin and Pavulon. He would tell the patients it was something to help them feel better. Moments after being given the injections, the patient would feel numb, their breathing labored, and then constricted. Minutes later, Cold Blue would sound off. As doctors and hospital staff frantically attended to the patient, Richard Angelo would step in and calmly help revive the dying individual. When he succeeded, his efforts were praised by doctors, colleagues, and even his patients victims. While serving his graveyard shift, he continued in this unusual hero play and placed 37 patients' lives in danger. It didn't matter to him that out of the 37 he poisoned with drugs, only a few survived to live to tell their tale. For months, he kept up this act, but on October 11, 1987, one victim, Juralimo Kucich, was awake when Angelo injected him with the drug cocktail. He immediately pressed his call button for assistance. The nurse who came in took a sample of his urine and the results were positive for the two drugs neither of which had been prescribed to him. Kucich also managed to provide a description of Angelo. The next day, police searched Angelo's locker and found vials of both drugs. He was arrested right away. Some of the bodies of those suspected to have been his victims were exhumed, and all 10 of the dead patients proved positive for the drugs. Angelo was arrested and charged with several counts of second-degree murder, homicide, and assault. He was found guilty and sentenced to 61 years to life. It's believed all in all he killed around 25 people in different places. His crimes were shocking enough, but his reason even more. When asked why he did it, he explained he had no confidence and felt inadequate. So he created situations where the patient would have a problem or some respiratory distress. He would then suggest intervention or intervene himself and look like he knew what he was doing. His defense argued Angelo suffered from disassociative identity disorder resulting in multiple personalities. This meant he was unaware what the other personalities were doing including the murders he committed. Despite two psychologists presenting evidence for his possible disassociative disorder, the judge never allowed the evidence to be presented in court. He's currently 57 years old and serving 50 years to life in the Great Meadow Correctional Facility. Number 4. Lynette Squeaky Fromm Born to middle-class parents from Santa Monica, California, Lynette Squeaky Fromm was known as an active child who loved hanging out with friends. But by age 14, her parents moved to Redondo Beach and Lynette fell in with the wrong crowd. She began drinking and using drugs. Her grades slipped, and she suffered from depression. By first year of college, her father kicked her out of the home. While living on the streets of Redondo Beach in 1967, Charles Manson took her in. Frome became enamored with Manson despite his criminal past. She loved his attitude and philosophy towards life, calling Manson a -a once-in-a-lifetime soul. She began traveling with him and by association became friends with his family, Mary Brunner and Susan Atkins. The family lived at the Spawn Movie Ranch. In exchange for rent payment, Manson arranged with the owner, George Spann, that he can have any of the Manson family wives for sex and other things whenever he wanted. Out of the wives, Frome was his favorite. In 1969, Manson was arrested for the Tate-LaBianca murders. From, though part of the family, was never implicated. Manson was sentenced to death in 1971, which was later changed to life in prison the following year. After Manson was arrested, many of the Manson family members left their leader or denounced him, but From didn't. Together with fellow member Sandra Good, they continued to support him even moving to Sacramento when Manson was moved to Folsom Prison. The two fell deeper into Manson's teachings, changing their names into Red for Fromm and Blue for Good. On September 5, 1975, after discovering President Gerald Ford would be at the Sacramento Convention Center, From, a tree lover who was scared air pollution would reach the coastal redwoods and cause them to fall down decided to talk to Ford about that issue. Strapping an antique 45 Colt pistol to her leg and dressing in a bright red robe, she headed to the state capitol building. Pushing her way to the front, she was a few feet away from the president when she raised her gun. People around her said they heard a click, but the gun never fired. She was promptly tackled by security and arrested she was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison for the attempted assassination. She escaped prison though for two days hoping to get closer to Manson once again. After her recapture she was given an additional 15 years. She was later released under parole in 2009 and is now free. About 40 plus years later she says she still doesn't regret the assassination attempt saying it's hard to be sorry if you're going by your heart. Number 3. Walter Seffert At 42 years old, former World War II veteran Walter Seffert from Cologne, Germany was diagnosed with tuberculosis. After the war, Seffert became a police officer but was released from his job following his diagnosis. This started his journey through government bureaucracy as he hoped to get a subsidized living. But Seffert was denied his application for government support since he was found to be capable of working, yet simply had no will to recover. Aside from that pronouncement, the government doctors also said he was a paranoid schizophrenic. But they decided he posed no threat to society, even though he told his brother before that he wanted to kidnap young girls and keep them as sex slaves. This was brought up, but nothing was done about it. The denial of government support was just the start. When Seffert married, he lost his young wife during childbirth, and he blamed the doctors. He began entertaining vigilante justice and started making weapons. He created a flamethrower crafted from an insecticide sprayer he also made a mace from a pump handle and a lance which was made from a broom tipped with a scraper. On June 11, 1964, he then headed to an elementary school. Several crossing guards saw him with the weapons but thought he was a repairman and didn't stop him. Once at the school, he used the mace to break open the classroom window and proceeded to use the flamethrower in the room setting the kids on fire. The teacher and children began rushing out of the building as Seffert continued firing his flamethrower. Several teachers tried their best to protect the students and received serious injuries in the process. After Seffert emptied his flamethrower, he used the lance to attack more people. Eight of the children later died from their injuries along with two teachers, while 22 others were seriously hurt. After his rampage, Seffert made a run for it he was chased by a dozen people. He attempted suicide by swallowing insecticide, but it didn't take effect immediately. Sefer tried to fight the cops and was shot in the legs and arrested. He was questioned at the hospital, but 12 hours after he massacred the school children, he passed away. All the victims were under 12 years old, and the two teachers were 24 and 62. Seffert's act of violence is considered amongst the most gruesome to happen in Germany. What's more unusual, the reasoning and motive of Seffert makes the crime even more unbelievable. Number two, Brenda Ann Spencer. Brenda Ann Spencer was a freckled-faced redhead teen. On January 29, 1979, It was a Monday at 8.30 a.m. when the bell at Grover Cleveland Elementary in San Carlos, California rang. The school was right in front of her home. As the children lined up to enter, they suddenly heard several pops. One by one, the kids started going down. It took several shots before anyone realized what was happening. Many children rushed inside while others were paralyzed in fear. The school principal, Burton Ragg, realized someone was using them as target practice from across the road and rushed outside to help the other students at the gate. He was shot in the shoulder and chest, later dying from his wounds. The next person that came out of the school was the custodian, Michael Searcher. He went outside with a blanket to help Ragg from bleeding out, but he became the next victim instead. The first police officer who responded was 28-year-old Robert Robb, a fresh graduate from the police academy. He too became a victim when he was shot under his right shoulder blade while examining both the principal and custodian. At least eight kids were injured and wounded during the attack. Three suffered wounds to their abdomens and one was struck in the back with the bullet exiting through their chest. Luckily, it didn't hit any internal organs. After firing 30 rounds, the shooting then stopped. As word of the shooting spread, reporters began calling people around the school's neighborhood hoping for information. Gus Stevens, a reporter for the San Diego Evening Tribune, placed a call to a home in the area for more information about the shooting. On the other line was Brenda Ann Spencer. Stevens asked her if she knew the shooter. She described the shooter as 16 years old and proceeded to give her own address. Stevens realized he was talking to the shooter himself. He asked for an interview while another staff of the paper reported the information to the police. When he asked Spencer why she opened fire, she nonchalantly answered she didn't like Mondays and did it for the fun of it. She added, because it's a way to cheer up the day. Police eventually surrounded her home as she refused to come out for hours. She later decided to surrender and Spencer was tried as an adult and pleaded to two counts of murder and nine counts of assault. She was sentenced to 25 years to life. She is presently incarcerated and has been denied parole several times. A shooting act inspired Bob Geldof of the Boomtown Rats to write their hit song "I Don't Like Mondays." Spencer's actions have gone down to become the first high-profile school shooting ever. Number one, Dennis Nielsen, born in Fraserburgh, Scotland. Dennis Nielsen knew from a young age he had homosexual desires but he was never comfortable with it. For a long time, he suppressed his emotions. After his parents divorced, he and his siblings ended up living with his grandfather. Nelson adored him and the two were close, but unexpectedly, his grandfather died when he was six. The traumatizing view of his grandfather's corpse at the funeral had a drastic effect on him later in life. After his mother remarried and had four more children, Nilsen became withdrawn and a lonely child. At 16, he enlisted in the Army and became a cook, serving as a butcher at the Army Catering Corps. He left the Army in 1972 and became a police officer where he was fascinated with morgue visits and autopsies. Later, he resigned and became a recruitment interviewer instead. In 1973, Nilsen was reported to the police when a young man David Painter accused him of taking pictures of him while he slept. Nilsen was questioned but was released without any charge. In 1975, Nielsen lived together with David Galichin at a garden apartment in North London. Although the two denied having a relationship, they lived together for two years. When Gulichin left, Nielsen's life began a downward spiral. He started indulging in alcohol and months later would commit his first murder. On December 29, 1978, Nilsen's first victim was a young man he met at a pub. But this time, he would frequent such places to meet people for sexual encounters and to stave off his loneliness. Nilsen invited his new friend home, but the next morning, overcome by his need to prevent the man from leaving, he strangled him with a tie then drowned him in a bucket of water. He slept next to the corpse and buried it under his floorboards for seven months, after which he burned what remained in his back garden. On December 3rd, 1979, Nilsson turned to another victim. This time it was Canadian tourist Kenneth Ockenden. The two met at a pub and went sightseeing and drinking. Afterward, they headed for Nilsson's apartment. Ockenden was strangled to death with an electric cable right before he was about to leave. Like before, Nelson cleaned the corpse, took photos, had sex with it, and placed it under his floorboard. He often took out the body to talk and engage with Ockenden as if he was still alive. By 1981, Nelson's life of crime and murder had claimed the lives of 12 men. Many of the bodies were hidden in different parts of his apartment. Some were even under the kitchen sink. To get rid of them, he would cut up the corpses on his kitchen floor and occasionally boiled the skulls and hands to remove the flesh and organs for disposal. The limbs and torsos were buried in the garden or stuffed in suitcases before he could burn them. The following year in 1982, he tried to end his homicidal tendencies by moving into a top floor apartment, but he wasn't able to stop his impulse. He ended up killing three more men from 1982 to February of 1983. Since he couldn't immediately dispose of the bodies, he chopped them into smaller pieces so they could be flushed down the toilet or carried out in plastic bags. The other tenants began having problems with their drain and one called Dino Rod to help figure out the drainage problem. When the technician opened the manhole, they discovered rotting human remains. Before calling the cops, the company wanted to do a full investigation first. Nelson tried to remove the human tissue discovered, but one of the tenants saw him and became suspicious. On February 9, 1983, a police detective arrived at his apartment to interview him. This detective noticed a foul odor, and when he asked Nelson about it, he point blank said that what they were looking for were in bags stored around the apartment. The officer discovered two dismembered heads along with other large body parts. Nilsson later provided details about his killing spree. It seemed as though he was glad he was finally going behind bars so he could stop his murders. Nilsson was charged with six counts of murder and two charges of attempted murder. He was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison without parole for 26 years and died in prison in 2018. So there were with the top five strangest murder motives. Murder is already a bizarre and unusual act, but discovering that some people have the most trivial motives behind it makes that act even more sinister and incomprehensible. If you like this video, then please subscribe to our channel and support us on Patreon. We have new videos coming out every Wednesday and Saturday that we know you'll want to check out. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you soon.